0: Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you have joined me today. I have a very special podcast, an interview with Ange Roll, who is a beekeeper and queen rearer and a very fascinating person. Ange is the owner of They Keep Bees and that's theykeepbees.com and if you visit there, you can download Ange's new free ebook, Radicalize the Hive, which I can't wait to do and to read. As with any interview on this podcast, I have to thank the recorder crew who provided me with a recorder, and as always, the Patreon crew who make sure that this podcast stays on the air. I thank every single one of you. In particular, I would like to say welcome to the newest Patreons, a very special welcome to new podcast angel, Mary in Chattanooga. And welcome to happy listeners and friends of 5Apple, Muhanden, Melissa, Kim, and Denise. Welcome. I first ran into Angie's name when I was reading Sarah Grant's online. Yes, that is a geeky thing I love to do <laughs> on rainy days when I should be cleaning the house or something. But I love to read the Sarah Grant's regarding beekeeping to see what people are investigating and to see what people are trying to figure out. If you're not familiar with SARE, it's, I believe it's the Sustainable Agricultural Research Exchange, but it's S-A-R-E, and they give some incredible grants. And if you go on the website, you can actually narrow it down to their beekeeping projects and read uh, what people are exploring. So I came across Angie's name in relationship to Sam Comfort because Ange and Sam are working on yet another grant that is fascinating. I'd become familiar with Sam, who is a very interesting beekeeper also, through his YouTubes, particularly the video Treatment Free But Not Stupid, which shows you the kind of uh, humor and no-nonsense practicality that seems to characterize Sam's work. But Sam has been very prolific in teaching, queen-rearing, and spinning off many protégés and apprentices and just very generous with his knowledge and Ange is another example of someone who credits Sam with playing an important role in their beekeeping work. So here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Today I have on the line with me Ange Roll of They Keep Bees. Hello Ange. Hello,
1: Lee. How's it going? Welcome.
0: Oh, it's going good. Welcome to Beekeeping at 5 Apple Farm. I am delighted to talk to you. I haven't done an interview in a while, so I'm very excited about this.
1: Awesome. I'm excited about it too.
0: Yay. Well, listen, I just tell me about your beekeeping these mm-hmm. days. What are you doing these days?
1: Cool. Um, yeah, so I run a little business called Bees. We are based in the northeast and the southeast. So we, our, our home base is in Montague, Massachusetts, which is in the western part of Massachusetts between the Connecticut River and the Berkshire Mountains. And, uh, then we have a little satellite operation that we run in southern Florida, in Martin County, Florida. Um, and what we do is we raise queens. We raise, uh, Varroa resistant stock of queen bees. Um, And we produce queens as well as nooks and both comb and liquid honey. That's what we
0: do. You cover it all. That's wonderful.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. But I suspect
0: your favorite thing is queen's.
1: My favorite thing is Queens.
0: <laughs> I am so with you. I'm so yeah. with you. I know some of my listeners are like, oh, please, Lee, talk about anything but Queens. But what is there besides
1: Queens? It's where the magic happens. Um, yeah. So our, you know, our sort of theory of beekeeping is to try to be as treatment minimal as possible. And in the Northeast, there are instances where we would have to use um, acid-based treatments, mostly oxalic acid is what we use. Um, but we're really trying to work with, for a bee that can be resistant to varroa um, and receive minimal treatment um, intervention. And what that means for us is that our bees have to be, the brood cycle on our hives has to be broken um, at least one time per season in the Northeast and in the Southeast more times than that. And that breaking of the brood cycle allows our hives to reset um, and also helps them to build a resistance to varroa over time. So we do a lot of brood breaking, as we call it, for breaking the brood cycle, having a period in the hive where there's no eggs or young larva or capped brood. Um, and the hive is either raising a queen cell or they're raising a bee's choice queen from a swarm cell that they've chosen.
0: Well, there, there's just so many, much in there, I don't know where to start. But what methods do you use to, to break brood, to do brood breaks?
1: Yeah, so so we do brood breaks in two different ways. Either we do grafting, which is when you take tiny larva and you change it over from the brood nest into queen cups and have a cell raiser or a, a, a queenless hive with lots of young bees raise those cells. And those cells then get, they go from the cell raiser into finisher hives or mating nukes at 10 days. And those hives are responsible for taking care of those queens until they're, they've completed their mating flight. So in that case, we would have a 10 day like a 10 to 14 day brood cycle because it'd be from a uh, brood break because it'd be from the time that the queen hatched out of the cell until she was completely mated and began laying eggs again. So that can be anywhere from 10 days to two weeks. And then the other thing that we do is when we have really incredible stock that we love, uh, we actually just dequeen dequeen them and we let them raise their own queen. And we might split them into two or three or four if they're really strong hives. But the objective is then to give them a longer brood break of three and a half After four weeks, completely suspends any brood production in the hive for that whole time and then allows them to raise their own queen from their choice larva.
0: Okay, so if a beginner came to you and said, I want to buy a queen from you and Mm -hmm. I want to buy a mated queen, but I also want to give my hive a brood break, what would you tell them to do?
1: Yeah, great question. So one of the things that I've been really interested in over the last few years is what it looks like when these raise their own queen. Sam Comfort and Anarchy Apiaries and I are, we're working on a grant around this. So it's the, the traditional walkaway split, right? That means you take the queen out, you take out a few frames of eggs or very young brood, and you take out a couple frames of food and you make a queen right split. And then you take that and you put it in a new position and you let the whole rest of the hive, all of the foragers, all of the nectar and all of the pollen and all of the cast brood, you let them raise their own queen. So you just leave them alone for three and a half weeks. Don't check on them. You don't peek under the lid, nothing. And they will raise a high quality queen. And Sam and I both separately have been doing this practice to get longer brood breaks. And we've been curious about what happens when you do a longer brood break and do the bees raise a high quality queen? Um, because in, in our anecdotal experience it seems to be true so over the last few months we've been actually investigating those those walkaway splits with the idea that beginner beekeepers could um, have a strong recipe for a walkaway split how much food to put in how much brood to put in what to put in there and when and know that they're going to get a high quality queen out of that. So I've really been focusing attention and energy on what are the ways as a very beginner beekeeper that I could give my hive a brood break so that I could reduce the mite pressure in my apiary and potentially reduce the need for treatment and at the same time be learning about the life cycle of the hive as well as of a queen bee. So I'm starting to sort of build my knowledge and understanding for when I do want to try to raise my own queen at a a larger scale. Right. And the reason that I got into that is because I, I, started as a backyard beekeeper and was experimenting with my own queen rearing and what it looks like to really like a queen and want to make a split off of her and do that well and slowly built that competency to being able to graft and doing that well and expanding my business and building a business based on that model. And so I really love this thought that like it it can be simple to make your own queen. It doesn't have to be very labor intensive. You can literally take all of the capped brood, all of the the older larva, all of the food and leave that behind and make a very small queen right split where that's that's very close to mimicking a swarm. Right. Because you don't have any cat's larva. You have just very young larva. You have a, a mated queen and maybe you have a few shakes of bees um, as well as the, the nurse bees that are on the frames that you split. And you're just making this tiny little nuke out of that. I'm putting it in a new location and letting your your queenless hive just be big and fat and raise the best possible queen that they can raise.
0: See, that is the that is the I believe the recipe that I love because yeah. I want I want the big fat hive that has a ton of foragers and a ton of resources. I want them raising my queens, not a few little pitiful frames of scared nurse bees raising you know a queen the way that people tell them right now do you advise people to go back in to the uh the hive and cull down those queen cells or pull those queen cells to queen castles or or do you just let them swarm
1: yeah so that's interesting i've i've been the way that we've been doing the the walkaway splits is we've been building a recipe for them so it's like three frames of cat's brood with a lot of bees on them, a frame of pollen and nectar and a frame of of full of nectar, and then a couple of shakes of bees so that it looks like a big, nice nuke that you'd make up and and sell to a customer. And we've been plugging those and bringing them to a new location and letting them raise their own queen. Or we've been leaving that queen-right colony in place so they get all the forager bees back. And we've been taking the rest of the colony and taking it away to a new location and we've been experimenting with like what what makes a better queen and we're still waiting for the the data and information on that uh, but it it looks potentially like having all those foragers return and having that little nuke ready and waiting to receive them is is will raise a better queen but we're still trying to figure out like what is the best recipe for raising a walkaway split where you don't have to put all of your resource towards the walkaway split, but you're able to raise a walkaway split. But the real objective for me is give your hive a brood break because what you're basically doing when you do that is mimicking a swarm. If you take your old queen away, you take a couple frames of brood away and you bring that to another yard or you just put it in a new location. Uh, you'll get enough bees staying around that already mated queen that she'll she'll thrive and do okay and then in your old location you let the bees make the choice because in in the natural world that's what would be happening anyway right if you weren't there to pull down cells or choose which cell you thought was the longest and the best the bees would raise all the cells that they wanted to, to raise to replace the queen that they'd lost and Those, the virgin queen would emerge and she would tear down her sister's cells and, and that would be your bee's choice mated queen. So that would be the, the queen that your bees chose to make without your intervention. And so it's, it's fun to be able to with, with fair grant money, you know, really experiment with the idea of like, well, what do the bees want versus what I want and how am I dictating or like prescribing the way that I want this to be versus letting them make their own choices about what they think is best.
0: That is pretty fascinating because, as my listeners know, one of my very favorite splits is the cut-down split. Oh. Because to me, it yeah it achieves so much because that way I can have honey, I get a, I get new queens or multiple queens, I, right. I still have my old queen and a little retirement new. But also, what you're talking about is something I've noticed, that some of the loveliest queens that I've gotten in my yard— have been where I have, I use all mediums Mm -hmm. and eight frame mediums. And so I'll have like a double eight frame medium and I pull a nuke out for somebody. So I pull five frames, you know, the queen, really give them a beautiful fat nuke. Well, there's still leftovers there and often there's the foragers. So many times I've let them requeen. Those have been some of the most beautiful queens Mm -hmm. I've gotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's basically the remnants of a nuke. Right. And in the original site. Right,
1: exactly. So you have young larva, you have enough brood in all stages that there's going to be brood in that hive throughout the process of raising that queen. And then there's a break when the queen is mating and all of the brood is hashed out, hopefully, that allows for a break in the brood cycle. And then hopefully that queen comes back and is mated and you have this hive that has enough food because they have an adequate number of foragers and they have enough young bees because they had that young larva to to raise up and hatch out to make a really excellent queen to feed her well to take care of her throughout all the stages of her life and then once she starts laying you know all your foragers will be replaced over over a period of time and you'll have a completely new hive that seems that's my always has always been my favorite way of making walkaway splits is taking out its the retirement nuke, as you just called it, <laughs> which is like taking out my queen. I take out two frames that are mostly eggs and very young larva, like the type of larvae that I would graft off of. Take a couple frames of that. Um, I take a frame of, you know, nectar. I take a frame that's sort of mixed, mixed food. So pollen and nectar, shake a couple of Trains the bees into that. That's my now retirement nuke that I take away to another yard. And then everything else, all the foragers that are going to return, all of the brood in all stages, everything stays on the original stand. And so I have the young bees and the foragers returning. And it just ends up being like a beautiful hive that in some years can even produce the honey crop. Like they can have a brood break just like a hive that is swarmed and still end up producing a honey crop from that because they still have those foragers that are constantly in production throughout the year, that they'll be the ones that either produce something or don't need to be fed in the fall when I'm going around and doing, you know, pests and checking on bees. I feel like beekeeping can be a lot simpler than we want to make it. And I love my queen calendar schedule and I love grafting and I love all this very like high tech and complicated skill set that I've built over many years. And at the same time, there's ways that that can be mimicked if you just have one or two or three hives that are very much in tune with the ways that beekeepers 100, 150 years ago were keeping bees successfully in like skep beekeeping models, you know?
0: Yeah. And I can't help but uh, recollect, I, I've kept bees without chemicals since 2010. Mm. And the, the main thing, I mean, I have a very isolated location, so I'm mm-hmm. lucky that way. But, um, but I also, I mean, I love to raise bees. Mm-hmm. So I would raise more bees give them or sell them to mm-hmm. other members of the club and then do my mite counts and they were good and yep. then I would raise more bees and yep. so over the years I've kind of f- figured out that my main tool is the brood yep. board and to me that comes as uh as not an artificial thing but basically a hopefully if I'm lucky a skillful mimic right. of the of the swarm. Yeah. And then you just get tons more bees. I mean, right? that's the beauty. Like right now I, I have bees in unpainted equipment because I just have so many, <laughs> <laughs> but they're so beautiful. What am I supposed to do? Right. So
1: I know that I have, I just actually broke down. I had several breeder queens in cardboard boxes that were slowly disintegrating around them. And I was like, okay, it's time to, it's the end of the year. It's time to combine these, and deal with this mess. <laughs> but it's true. It's just, you just get you, you know, you get like the the ball gets rolling. And, and before you know it, you have 150. I'll speak for myself. You know, this year, I started with 45 hives in Florida, and we made 200 hives from those hives. And then we came up here with with us some behind and came up here with 65 small colonies that we were going to work with for our queen production and then 50 that we sold off to our customers as nukes but of those 65 we've made 140 hives you know so like it we we just expand and grow very quickly and then are able to sort of call back and make selections around who's rolling lower varroa mite counts and like what how beautiful this queen is. And, you know, all the justifications that I make up for keeping them like, look, this one has a very specific pattern of stripes and dots, and we must incorporate it into our genetic life.
0: <laughs> oh, I love those tiger striped <laughs> ones. Oh my God. those. Yes. And Michelle knows I love the jet black ones uh-huh. and the tiger striped mm-hmm. ones. And the, Yes. It's yep. just, a, it becomes a collector's habit. Yes, You know?
1: Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, it, for us, we love working with I think this is the same for you based on what I know. Like we love working with feral stock bees and bees that we catch in swarm traps and bees that we, that we see survive over several winters here in new England, which is no easy feat. And so we have these gorgeous bees that, that when you, when you do graft from them, you get 20 different daughter Queens. They all look completely, completely different because you have these very wild lines of bees that you're working with and you're getting all these different genetic expressions over time. So it's, the, the biggest struggle I have in in queen production is just choose you know making the decision about which bees to sell because I'm in love with like every single queen that comes. Out of <laughs> Tell me so you know it's
0: such uh it's such a difference because here we are talking about you know having too many bees and having too many too many right. bees to fit in the boxes and which ones do you keep and it's such a contrast to the struggle that I hear so many yeah. beginners have. What do you feel like is the, what, what is the moment where, you, where you go, okay, this is the thing. I mean, I, with the listeners, I tend to say, you know, have at least three hives and either mm-hmm. a, a couple of nukes or a queen castle and yeah. just be raising and playing and don't worry about having too much, you know, give them away, sell them, whatever you need to do. What do you feel like the, the beginner, the key thing of going from "Oh my gosh, am I going to have bees in the spring?" to "Oh my gosh, what am I going to do with all these bees in the spring?"
1: Yes, oof, that's such a good question that I really appreciate. I, I very much mimic or imitate what you're saying. You know, I feel like the the veil was lifted or the the crystal ball was broken open when I understood like bee math. So that feels really important to me. Like when when bees are going to be emerging, when, how long it takes to make a queen, how long it takes to mate a queen and what a hive needs to get through a whole season in my bioregion. So when I teach people about bees, I'm teaching them more about like what's happening in the place that you are in the spring, summer, and fall, and how do you prepare your bees and yourself to understand when the things are happening or when they're missing from the equation, right? So basically like How do you, as a person who hasn't been plugged into this before, plug into the ecosystem where you are and understand what nectar flows are happening and how that's impacting this thing that you're interested in, which is the honeybee. So that's like the first, that was the first layer. And then understanding how to break the brood cycle, which is. To me, an imitation of what bees are doing to manage varroa mites and other pests and diseases in the hive. So how to break the brood cycle at a moment where it's going to be healthy for your bees. And there are enough bees present in your hive that they can bounce back from that and produce a high quality queen. And, and the same, in that same vein that you're saying, like, I, I love the idea that as a new or beginning beekeeper, you have two or three hives and you know, maybe you have your two hives that are your Let's call them your production hives, your honey making hives, your, your hives that are, you know, two deep, large, plus whatever you want to put on top of them. And then you always have like a backup five frame nuke and maybe even like a backup three frame nuke. So you have the capacity to split those hives in the springtime and make those tiny hives that you're going to have. And then you have those nukes alive through the year so that if something does go wrong, like, you know, you make a walkaway split and it fails, or a queen that you thought was doing really well ends up riddled with a Varroa infestation. Like you can respond to that using all the resources that you have. But if you just have one hive, you're really limited in how You can engage with honeybees and you're really limited in your understanding of like what your whole ecosystem looks like because the nectar flow looks really good if your hive is healthy. But if it, if your hive is dwindling, it doesn't look that way, right? Like they're just not bringing in as much and storing as much. And so I feel like that variation is really key. And and also that like knowing that you're going to expand as the light is expanding, as the spring is going on, and then you're going to contract as the summer goes forward and make those selections, which goes back to what we were talking about before. Like it's hard to make those selections and say, this queen is better than that queen. And so I'm going to call this one and keep that one. You know, those, that's, that was maybe like the breaking point for me is like, how do you finally be like, okay, I raised all these queens and now I have to pick the ones that aren't doing as well and call them and make my, you know, my queen pheromone tincture for the year. And
0: (laughs) that just breaks my
1: heart. I know,
0: I know. I just apologize. I just say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But yes, you do. You have to, when you, when you have, you know, 20, you're like, you know, I have to pick the best five of you. And um, And
1: like, which is, what are the queens that have the most varroa resistance that are chewing down, like uncapping and recapping cells every year and like have the most nurse bees with them? Like. Those are your bees that have the best chance of putting them through winter. And I think that's, for me, winter here is really hard. And it took me a long time to understand that as a human that moved here from a different place and as a beekeeper. And so it's a disservice to to not do that work in the fall and try to put more bees through the winter. If that makes sense. You know, like like, let's put six weak colonies through the winter instead of three strong colonies. Like that doesn't it doesn't make any sense because then they're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. I
0: mean, there is a kind of loving ruthlessness that you, that you have to have to, um And I do hear that. I do hear that from beginners who are just going around the moon kind of like, you know, beehive ICU to try to get yeah. back when I'm like, okay, you didn't make the cut. Love y'all. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very sad, but, but that is, I mean that, and to to me, that's more akin to, um, I don't know the, the idea of, of animal breeding and when you are, are truly selecting to hard toward the best. Yeah. And then it's not like you, I, I try to tell my listeners, you know, you know, name your hive stand, but don't name your queen. You know, um, <laughs> I, yeah, all my hive stands yeah. have names, so I'll remember where they are, You're but right. it's like it's, uh, and the, the thing I've come up with recently is, um, you know the bees are very the queen is dead long live the queen that's that's how they right. roll so and that's what keeps them ahead of things
1: yeah and for them i mean it's important to remember like for them the queen is a tool like the the hive is an organism the bees the workers the brood like that's the organism and the queen is the tool that they use to propagate themselves forward so if we think about it like from their angle the queen's not in charge, but it's important for her to be well-mated and for her to have varroa resistance, for example, or disease resistance, because that passes what they need to survive from one generation to the next. So, you know, if we think about it from their angle, it's very easy to see. It's easier to say, okay, I need to call this queen that has no varroa resistance or can't lay eggs consistently because I'm doing that for the service of the of the sort of like greater good of the colonies that are going to continue forward. And they do that easily. I mean, they my bees are out back throwing drones out the front door right now. Like there's no tomorrow. You know, they're chewing drone comb down right now. Just like, okay, we're done with this. There's not enough. We've, we've had like a wicked drought all, all spring and part of summer. And so we did have a decent spring summer flow, but our basswood didn't come in. And I'm, so I'm watching my bees like respond to that right now and it's ruthless. Like they're like, no more drones take all those cells down, throw them all out the front door. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. I mean, they are all, yes, they are all about you it. Know? It is, really is adjusting yeah. to their, their plan of care on what, yep. how they yep. want to do things. Yep. That's- yep.
1: They know, they know what they want and they know what they need, you know, and we'll, we'll get a good fall nectar crop here in like a, a fall flow and that'll put them through the winter. But last winter when we had, we had a, an incredible nectar flow up here that just like flowed from the dandelion all the way through the basswood. So there was nectar that whole time and it took them so long to put up the honey because there was so much of it that it flowed into the fall flow. And so bees were just like making wax and raising drones through almost October 1st last year. And this year you see the difference where they're like, not enough nectar, get out, come go. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep not enough bees in the hive time to abscond you know like they're they're making those decisions right now and that's sort of where i try to coach you know beginning beekeepers who work with me and and people that i'm talking to is like you have to make the decisions in line with what the hive needs and so if you're thinking about this as like a socialist democracy you know like they're making decisions based on what they all need and if you can't do that then you're not really in line with what they need. You're just trying to, like, propagate something to make yourself feel better, which is not, in the long run, like, going to get you to a place where you have bees that can survive and thrive where you are. So it's like... Hard decisions for better decisions down the road. Maybe I'm not yeah.
0: sure. <laughs> well, you know, and it sounds. I mean, it sounds to me like in your in your work, you are very involved with the bees. It's, it sounds like very much like a dance that you're involved uh, with the bees. Yeah. How do you how do you talk to folks who they're getting into beekeeping, but they really have ideas about? I'm just gonna. I, I just want to let nature take its course. I want to put these hives mm. out there. I don't want to be very involved. Um, how how do you, how do you respond to that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I feel, I feel like being sort of treatment minimal and, and, and treatment free for many years in my practice, I have learned the hard way what the honeybee's life cycle is. And so what I try to do with folks who are like, I want to be as uninvasive as possible is like, okay, so how do we set your hive up so that it would be a small hive that swarmed frequently and you're just going to let the swarms go and hope that your bees raise a new queen and if they don't then you've you've lost your bees but but i kind of want to i i want to be able to teach folks that there's a life cycle of this organism and you can choose to move and shift and try to manage or manipulate that life cycle or you can choose to sort of like set it and forget it but if you set it and forget it we don't you don't have bees that you're buying as a package or as a nuke from a large-scale producer that can be set and forgotten. It's like if you were going to get chickens and set it and forget it. Like that's a domesticated animal that's been bred for several generations to live as a domesticated animal. It's not a turkey anymore, right? Like it's, yeah. a different, it's a different animal now. And turkeys can live out in the wild on their own and take care of themselves. Chicken will get eaten very, very quickly by the predators, because they are just ruthlessly predated by everything. So, what do you do to set up a chicken to live in the wild? And if the answer is you can't, then the idea that you as a, as a new beekeeper are going to purchase industrially produced bees and set them and forget them is just sort of, it's irresponsible. Maybe if you're going to be like, okay, I'm going to be very mindful. I'm going to choose a Varroa sensitive stock that's that's from a, a, a like a more wild or, or feral line and I'm gonna I'm gonna set those and forget them. I still feel like that's verging on irresponsible, but at least there are ways I feel like you could set up a small like eight frame hive and let your bees swarm and just accept that either they'd make it or they wouldn't. That would feel more responsible than if you were going to let them build up into a giant hive that was you know 2 10 frame deep tall and and had honey supers on it and you're just going to let them throw swarms like what are you sending out into the wild environment i mean we know that bees transmit disease with bumble like honeybees transmit disease with bumblebees and other native pollinators so what what disease or viral load are you sending into the wild environment when you're making that kind of decision about bringing in uh, uh, essentially a domesticated animal and, and introducing them to the wild and letting it go. You know, it feels almost as irresponsible as folks who've, who've unintentionally propagated, uh, in quote unquote invasive species. Like, oh, we're just going to bring this knotweed over here and use it as a fence. And now <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's virulent and it's everywhere. It's like, well, you don't know what you're bringing in. You, the, I guess the idea of setting and forgetting to me is like, but you don't, you're just making decisions without knowing any of the, the baseline ecology. And that's where I get very nervous about it. Because I'm like, well, you don't know, not only do you not know much about honeybees, but you don't know how they impact the system around them. Because when we're talking about honeybees, we're talking about a, a, an insect that's in like a reciprocal relationship with the environment around it, that could be very dangerous if it was sick, because now it's disease to mason bees and bumblebees and little native pollinators that live in the ground that we know so little about. So it just creates this dynamic that's not saving the bees or saving the environment. It's like propagating a misunderstanding. I hear you so much. I, it's
0: very difficult to talk <laughs> about this, especially online, because, you know, people just are so fundamental in one direction or the other. And it's yep. it can be really challenging. And they are, bees to me, are, are such a mix of wild and semi-domesticate. I mean, there's such a, and I, I like my role of interacting with them. I mean, I've, I've gotten to see how I can have a, a creative and helpful role in their in their life cycle. And that's not to say they need me because hopefully no. they're, I mean, I just they pray they're somewhere <laughs> out there making, yeah. But at the yep. same time, I know when I came to my extremely isolated uh, southern Appalachian Valley and, and brought bees, you know, the old timers drove up to my house and said, oh, my God, we're so glad to see bees again. We haven't seen mm. bees in years. And, you know, that was thrilling. So it's like, on one hand, they're not, you know, apparently they weren't out there in the national forest as much as one would hope here. Um, But at the same time, when I lose a swarm, I'm like, yay, go forest team. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I hope they'll do okay.
1: (laughs) Oh, I caught a swarm last year that was, I I think was from, you know, a swarm that I'd sent out into the world the year before. And I, I was just like, yes, this is like second generation montague bees (laughs) that is right out to the forest and then they came back and and they they, come back better
0: right that's wonderful yeah i raised
1: several daughters from that from that uh they overwintered and so i raised several daughters from that hive this year and every time i was like wow like these are bees that i know i sent out i watched them go i knew what tree they were in and i know that they came back and that's there's there's some magic there and some like feelings of of deep connectedness, but it's so much more complicated than I think we, we've we been fed to understand that like a very sort of mainstream media standpoint. Well, I think that's
0: beautiful. And, and I mean, I'm personally relieved that, you know, humans can have some kind of positive interaction with the natural world yeah. and, and that there's something we can actually do that, that we can play a role that's positive for mm-hmm. a change. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, tell that. me
0: how you came to work with Sam Comfort.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so Sam and I have known each other a long time. Uh, we met at like a treatment-free conference in New England in, I think it was in 2010. This is where I get to being like, wow, I'm getting up there in age because I don't remember like <laughs> 10 years ago anymore. <laughs> uh, we met at this conference out in Lemonster that was put on by this couple at the time Dean and Ramona and it was all these treatment free beekeepers and then Mike Palmer um which I f- remember saying was such a funny anomaly but um we had this you know lectures it was hands on learning and i think this was the first time that i saw anybody graph see the process of going from you know grafting larva to watching it go from 24 to 48 hours and checking it and then transitioning it from starter colonies to finisher colonies so this was early in my like beekeeping experience but just when I was starting to get curious about all these complexities let's say and I met Sam at that and I think you know a couple a year or two later I bought some bees from him and then in 2015 I got a grant in Massachusetts to to basically Imitate what Erin McGregor Forbes was doing. So she's taking, she did the SARE research where she, you know, raised southern bees and pulled their queens and introduced northern queens and was tracking their varroa resistance and their overwintering capacity. And so I basically built the beginnings of my operation where I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to raise southern packages, introduce northern queens from two different genetic lines. And then I'm going to track those queens and make them into my uh, breeding stock and so that's I like to write down things and then do them so that's what I did and I got queens at that time from Sam as well as from Bob Brockman um, in New York who's a Russian queen breeder and those bees became my stock and I think just from that I had this sort of tangential connection where I would keep Sam updated on how the bees were doing and um, go out there and visit every once in a while because Hudson Valley, where Sam does his northern work, is only about two hours from where I am in Western Mass. So it's kind of just over a mountain ridge. Yeah. So we've, we've kept in touch over the years. We've been bee buds and then we have a, both have a tie to South Florida as well. So I, I would go down and see family down there and visit his operation in South Florida. And, and then a couple of years ago, I, I sort of got serious about queen rearing and went and did a 10 day immersion with, um, Kirk Webster. And when I came back from that, I called Sam up and I was like, I really want to do this. And like, I'm really into it and tell me what else I need to know or think about or, you know, like what the alternatives to what I just saw were. And so I went out and worked with him that summer and he gave me like a few more queens to work with. And that stock that I overwintered that year really, really became like my strong my my breeding stock. So I'd sort of selected down from 2015 to 2018 and then had a few more uh, daughters added to the mix. And then, you know, I just sort of kept going back to Sam and being like, okay, now I'm serious about this and I want to do it at this level. And he'd be like, okay, well, I you can help me do these things and these things, and then you can try these things. And so I've just, we've built a friendship where we work together and he's been incredibly supportive of like me trying to ad hoc together a beekeeping career. You know, I haven't worked for a lot of other commercial operations. I have been pretty stalwart about minimal treatment in my apiaries from the beginning, really didn't want to treat, wanted to figure out ways that I could break brood cycles and understand more about what bees were doing to be adaptive. Um, and last year, I went down to Florida for the first time and got to work with um, Florida Genetics for the whole season. That was 2019. Um, and then this year in 2020, did that again and really expanded my uh, genetic pool brought queens back to the northeast so I'm basically taking queens that I overwintered here um, and working with them for the whole summer and spring the spring and summer here in the northeast and then bringing them down to the southeast to get like a second set of splits or grass out of them in September October and I've been doing that for two years now and as I'm building that business I'm also helping Sam and his South Florida queen rearing or queen production apiary and we've been you know spitballing ideas for the last couple of years so last year we applied to do a trial with the university of massachusetts where we tried to raise 48-hour cells and compare those to 10-day cells and also compare those to walkaway splits Um, we got that grant and we started that trial this spring And then at the same time, we got a second grant to try to create a recipe for walkaway splits. And that's what I was talking about a little bit earlier. So we looked at, you know, what happens when you make a walkaway split and you leave the whole thing in place, let all the foragers come back? What happens when you make a walkaway split and you take the queenless one away to a new location? And what happens when you make a walkaway split and you can can find them? for 24, 48 hours, and which one of those three makes the best walkaway split. So we sort of used our one grant to get a second grant to like expand the research a little bit more so that we could end up creating this thing that was like, this is what it looks like to make a 48-hour queen. Queen cell and like to expand your apiary that way. This is what it looks like to make a ten day queen cell and expand your apiary that way. And this is what it looks like if you were expanding your apiary at a, at a walkaway split level. And these are the recipes that you could potentially use for that. And the objective is to make queen rearing more accessible. As you know, this is a hard thing to learn. It's a like hard thing to perfect. And it's even more challenging if you don't have access to a good mentor or someone who's willing to support you or someone that sees your vision as legitimate and and valid and is willing to nurture that. You know, we don't, this industry is very industrialized, right? Huge scale monocrop agriculture. There's not a lot of people who are like, there's value in you being a small scale queen producer. And so Sam and I are trying to collaborate on what is what does it look like to support small scale queen producers? How do we get a collective of us going? How do we make it so we're like trading genetics and getting supported by folks who've been breeding queens for several years? And what does it look like to to have some kind of, eventually over time, some kind of rigorous selection process for burroa resistance that people are sharing and there's a peer support network? So, I mean, Sam and I are both fairly radical in our political perspective and our perspective on humanity and so I think we come together on bees and we come together on that a lot and we're just both thinking about what does it look like to radicalize this what does it look like to make this more accessible what does it look like to make this like a peer process instead of like a hierarchy of knowledge and competition you know like
0: oh to be to be a fly <laughs> on the wall beside and one of y'all's fireside sits I would love I don't it.
1: think either of us <laughs> breathe the whole time because my partner right. <laughs> comes to them and it's just like Wow, it's just like ambition soup over here. <laughs> I know. Well, if you
0: start talking, I mean, to me, anything about bees, if, if two beekeepers sit and have a conversation at the end, right. you have 10 new questions exactly. that you didn't even have yeah. when you sat and down. Right. Yeah, yep. that
1: came from like, what does it take to use less resources than making a walkaway split or less resources than making 10 day cells, but more resources than making a walkaway split? Like, how do you sort of start to bridge? your understanding so you can take yourself from walkaway split to, to 48 hour queen cell to 10 day queen cell. And like our 48 hour queen cells too hard. Like, do we need to make it easier? Do we need to make it a walkaway split? Like so many questions get birthed from, from research like this. And it's fun to think about, Hey, it's fun to get paid to investigate things that you came up with at a fireside chat. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> I'll say, I cannot think of a better thing. Just like somebody's going to give me money to go out and, and, and I like to say on my yeah, farm, to wander exactly. and wonder, you know, wander I mean, and wonder. And yeah. You know, honoring that
1: there's an incredible amount of work that's gone into writing the grants and executing the field work. Like it's 10 times more work than I thought it was going to be. And we're basically getting to investigate these questions that we have about doing a thing that we're both really passionate about. Like, I'm passionate about being a small-scale clean producer. I'm passionate about working in small-scale agriculture. I'm passionate about getting skills into people's hands as we're thinking about what food sovereignty and food justice and food equity look like as we are basically stumbling towards, like, a new paradigm, right? So. people are paying me to do that research and that's awesome <laughs> that
0: you know you are living right when yep yep well i mean in our local club it's just been thrilling because in the past few years we've you know we've gone from that the standard thing mm-hmm. was to order more packages from the bee store, order more nukes to, you know, we've got beginners that are just a few years and they've got so many, hi- I see them on Facebook. They've got so many hives. They, awesome. they can't build stands fast enough. and yeah. You know, and and I, That is just the, thrilling. The cool thing to about me, that so.
1: is like, then you can take someone who's a beginner and turn them into an intermediate beekeeper by being like, okay, raise five nukes for the club. You know, like, like that's, it's such a beautiful test of like what you can do and like what, it, it makes you select your queens. it makes you think hard about what you would or wouldn't sell, right? like what would I give to somebody that I respect and is a friend of mine and they're gonna use to build their own apiary? That's different than like what would I keep and try to bolster and keep alive because I feel bad because I don't want to pinch the queen? you know it's it completely changes the like the paradigm in your brain. you're just like, oh okay, like, I'm raising bees for other people. I don't know about you, but like I I give my heart and soul to the people I love in my life. So, so when it comes to, like, I'm doing something for someone else versus, like, I'm just doing it as a hobby by myself as an experiment, it completely changes the dynamic of what I'm going to do. Because I'm like, if I'm raising queens for Lee, I'm going to make sure, like, the brood looks great the queens are beautiful. There's lots of bees in there. If I'm raising them for myself, I'm like, I could, I could probably feed this one a little bit more and get it through. You know, it's just like a different, it's a different dynamic in your brain. And A, it's more collaborative and B, it's, it's like forcing you to learn and make decisions at a level that you maybe wouldn't otherwise. So it's cool. It's cool to think about using the skills we have and like, Structuring those in a way that we all have these like little jobs to do to make beekeeping more sustainable.
0: I love it. That is just so, and it's such a delight. It's such a delight to hear beekeeping from that angle versus first you have to do this <laughs> awful, horrible chore and then you have to do this horrible, you know, and, and I love it. M- Michelle in a re- presentation she gave recently, you know, she really emphasized you, you have to do the work. You have to do the work, but it's such a joyous work when you see, you know, when you open a hive and, and see them just boiling over and just robustly healthy. My gosh, that's its own reward right there.
1: Yeah. I mean, and for me, I'm like, you have to do the planning. Like you have to plan what it is to have a hive at all the different stages of the season. And then you have to do the work as Michelle is saying, right? So first make the plan, then do the work. And then when you're returning to the hive, you're seeing them really healthy and, and, And well propagated instead of that, like panic stricken, like, oh, no, this is going south. Oh, no, I need a new queen. I need to spend $30. Like, it's just a completely different shift when you're like, okay, what do I want? How do I get there? What do I need to do to get there? Calendar that out. So that I can actually make it happen, it shifts it.
0: And then you're just then you're just one step from, oh, my God, what do I do with all these bees? Yeah. And then you're <laughs> yeah, like,
1: oh, wow, I sure do have a lot of bees.
0: <laughs> and worse, your spouse is going, that's a lot of bees. There soon be yeah. ble- bees bleeding mm-hmm. over into the backyard. Yep. <laughs> I found the uh, spacing out the yards and not being real specific about where all the yards are is working for me at home. <laughs> so. Oh, it's yes. like I'm going to an out yard and I just don't specify which one. So, right. Well, it is such a joy to talk to you. And so Thank for you. the listeners who would like to find out, and I understand you've released a book recently. Is
1: that correct? Oh, yes. We didn't even touch, touch on that. Uh, yeah. So right amidst the, the COVID pandemic, I put out this little book. It's free. It's called Radicalize the Hive. Um, and that is sort of my manifesto on where the honeybee industry is right now and what needs to change it, which if you're listening to this podcast is basically just that um, <laughs> small scale apiculture in a collaborative model. And so with that in mind, I I interviewed several beekeepers in the U.S. who who have this, you know, who operate from this paradigm of like, what does it look like to have bees and collaborate around bees and that includes everyone from, you know, queen breeders like Mike Palmer and Kirk Webster and Melanie Kirby to, like, small-scale uh, community beekeepers um, like uh, oof, ABC up in Kelowna and, um, uh, oh, Gracious. And, like, Island Bee Co., which is a New York City uh, small, like, community apiary. So, like, really looking at all the different ways that cooperative beekeeping can exist, collaborative beekeeping can exist in the U.S., um, and telling those stories. And then a just basically an info dump of every resource that I use as a beekeeper for planning and calendaring and knowing what to do when, Um and all of that book radicalize the hive i released as an ebook so you can download it um, if you enter your email on my website which is theykeepbees.com uh and you can also get it from this platform called um, open books because i wrote the whole book for a university that i partner with the university of massachusetts um Yeah, so I released this massive book, and hopefully I'm going to sort of cull it down and make it into a print book over the next couple of years. I've been talking to some publishers about that this year, so we'll see what happens.
0: That is exciting. And then also, when will the results, uh, when will you and Sam be publicizing the results of your study?
1: Great. So the Northeast Fair grants that we are doing right now, about 40-hour clean cells and walkway splits, um, we will be culminating the seasons research in October, so we're going to have some statisticians look at it and give us some feedback and hope to have results and feedback um, by January 2021. Uh, and then we'll have follow-up results about like winter survivability for all three of the methods um, in March or April, 2021.
0: I can't wait. I'm so I've already put my you know sil- silent bets on my favorite horses. So yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And we're we're you know we're hoping to roll that into other SARE work over the next couple of years, but that's sort of TBD at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been awesome to do that work. And then uh, social media wise, on Facebook and Instagram, I'm at They Keep Bees. Um, So if you want to follow along with what we do in the Northeast or the Southeast, that's the place to find us. I
0: can't wait. I am going to be following along. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, it was has been a total delight to talk with you.
1: Yeah, same here. Thanks for asking me.